Well, good morning. Glad to be with you guys. Um, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3. So if you want to turn, turn there, that's where we'll be. <clears throat> it's been quite a year, 2020. A lot of things going on. A lot of things still going on. Not done yet. It was quite a year for Jonah, too. Um, but the good, the good news is that, um, that God works in the midst of all of that. We can see God pursuing Jonah uh, through um, things that he did not enjoy, things that he did not want. He didn't want to receive orders to Nineveh. Uh, but God worked through it. God had a plan. Uh, and he was fulfilling the purposes that, that he had in his heart. Um, even though it didn't take this like linear progression, uh, a lot of times I think we expect our our sanctification to have this linear progression, like like the way the a career plan is laid out. But it really just has peaks and valleys, and the road is pretty winding. Um, but the hope is, and the good news is, God knows what's going on, and we can trust His hand. We can take our good Father by the hand, and we can we can trust where He's leading us. And I can tell you that. Um, that, that today, that in the midst of coronavirus, in the midst of unrest, in the, in the midst of political um, divisiveness and ambiguity, um, our good Father's working, and he's pursuing us, and he's, um, he's, working, he's working to sanctify us even in this. Um, with that being said, let's pray, and we'll get into Jonah 3. Father, we do trust you. Uh, and uh, our trust is not complete. Um, we pray that you would help us trust you more completely. We pray that you'd pour out your grace on our hearts, that uh, we would take your hand, and we would, we would let go of the things that our hearts have, have just clenched and grasped onto uh, in the midst of uh, our, our anger and our hurt and our confusion. Um, we, we've, we've grasped onto to idols many times, Lord, and I just pray that you help us to, to let go. Um, we can't let go uh, in our own strength, in our own power. We, we, uh, we pray that you turn our eyes towards, towards you today, your beauty, your gospel, your love, your mercy, uh, and I pray that that would just uh, help us to be freed from it and to, uh, to release our grip on those idols and, and cling to you in trust. Um, we pray that you'd speak through your word today uh, to our church family. Uh, we're dependent upon you. We need you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, I introduced our series theme in Jonah, and that is that while we are on mission as his sent people, uh, our good father faithfully pursues us as his mission. So uh, while on mission for him, we are his mission. In Jonah 3, the theme that we're going to see is, is this. When our hearts are unrelenting in judgment towards other people, there is hope for our unrelenting hearts in our good Father's merciful posture. The title of this sermon is The God Who Relents. Now, if you, because if you, uh, we started in chapter 2, verse 10, if you look at that verse there, uh, we see that uh, the Lord speaks to the fish that had swallowed Jonah. The fish vomits him out. Um, I, I don't know how that works. 
how he lands at projectile vomit, I don't know. Uh, but he's on dry land. After three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, uh, Jonah is back on solid ground. Um, and, you know, I mean, not being able to explain how that happened is not the only part of this story that is pretty miraculous. I mean, he's coming out of a belly of a fish. So um, when we try to explain these miracles, uh, we kind of we kind of hit we hit walls. So uh, we um, uh, we can only do so much to explain those. And uh, God gives us what we need to know to, uh, and we we trust Him in that. Uh, whenever Jonah gets back on solid ground, uh, we don't know how long. God waited until he tapped Jonah again for the Nineveh mission, uh, but he does. It could have it been days and months uh, uh, or months, but whatever the amount of time, the Lord does recommission Jonah, as we see in verses 1 and 2. It's obvious that this is the mission that God has for Jonah, that he has specifically selected Jonah, that he will not just have someone preach to Nineveh, he's going to have Jonah preached to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah runs away. God doesn't select somebody else. He pursues them. He rescues them. He puts them back on dry land. Okay, let's do this again. You're going to Nineveh. Jonah, the ardent nationalist. Why does he pick Jonah? Why? Because God wants to punish him? Because God wants to provoke him, to torture him? No, because God is a good father who doesn't let his children uh, continue with rebellion lurking in their hearts. He surfaces that rebellion. He exposes it. He brings it out so he can deal with it because that rebellion works death in us like we were talking about a couple weeks ago. He loves Jonah enough to give him a mission that challenges his heart. That's the Father's love. He won't let us stay in that place of hate and judgment and rebellion. Now, if you looked at the beginning of chapter two, uh, three, sorry, the beginning of chapter three, and said, that looks a lot like chapter one, you wouldn't be wrong. It does look a lot like chapter one. In many respects, the second half of the book mirrors the first half of the book, uh, but with one exception, Jonah himself. Jonah does not rewind or reset and become the same person that he was back in chapter one, where he tried to quietly leave Israel and escape the mission. Jonah is now a person who has seen God's judgment and mercy firsthand in the form of a near-death experience and a miraculous rescue. Jonah is called to preach now having just received mercy. He's called to preach that others would receive mercy. So although we see certain circumstances and, and events repeat in Jonah's life here, and he appears to be at the beginning of another go-around, the father's pursuit of Jonah is not back at square one. He's not at square one. When the whale dumped him off on the beach, uh, God had taken another step forward in his long-term rescue of Jonah's heart. Um, I just want to tell you today, God's mercy, when God gives you mercy, mercy does not set us back. You know, we have, we have sin that, that weighs us down, and we have setbacks of sin, but uh, we do, but our sin doesn't set God back. You know, his mercy doesn't set us back, and our sin doesn't set him back. God is continuing to take steps forward in his long-term rescue of our hearts, whether that looks like a linear progression or it looks like a total mess, which is usual. 
which is normal. He's taking steps forward. Chapter 3 brings with it a new perspective. From almost the very beginning of Jonah, what have we seen? Where has the camera gone? Jonah. Jonah going down to, Jonah receiving the call. Jonah going down to Joppa. Jonah getting on a ship. Jonah being questioned by the mariners. Jonah being thrown into the sea. Jonah going down into the ocean. The camera follows him down to the depths of the ocean. Jonah inside the fish. Jonah praying and then being spewed out onto the shore. But here in chapter 3, we, we see a different perspective. We, we, the, the camera zooms out a bit, as it were, and, and the city of Nineveh is brought into the scope of, of our view here. And we even see, for the first time, the camera leaves Jonah for a bit and wanders into the palace, and we see the, the king uh, of Nineveh. And, and, and we're seeing here a different perspective that is of the relationship between God and the Ninevites now. The, whole, the book as a whole primarily focuses on Jonah and his relationship with God. It's about Jonah as God's mission. But here in chapter 3, we're reminded of that while we're his mission, we are on a mission. We're God's sent people. So Nineveh is the mission that Jonah was on. What kind of city was Nineveh? Looking back at chapter 1, verse 2, we see that God called Nineveh a great city. One way in which it was great was its population. Nineveh was large and growing, uh, becoming one of the top six most populous cities in the ancient world during this period. It was also an important city with regard to power and influence. The king had his palace there. Um, people debate on whether this was a Syria's capital, uh, but whether it was at this time, it would soon become Syria's capital. The king had already made his home there. It was a very important city. So that's Nineveh. Who were the Ninevites? What were these people like? Chapter 1, verse 2 also talks about the Ninevites, and it says that God tells Jonah that the Ninevites' evil had come up before him. So God had taken particular notice about the Ninevites' evil. Sounds pretty important. Now this evil, what, what, did they, what did they do? What were they involved in? This evil had mostly to do with violence and with uh, social injustices. Assyria was not a peaceful kingdom. It was not Camelot. Um, Assyria um, was, was a war machine. And that war machine lifestyle uh, did not... Uh, translate well, especially after so long being on the, the, the conquering trails, so long it had, it had brought decay to their cities and it had brought moral, moral depravity into their cities that led them to be violent towards each other, not just to other people on the outside, but they, were, they had violence in their hands towards each other, and that's where you get the social injustices. Um, Assyria was not a peaceful kingdom. It was a war machine. Historical records show us that around this time that the Assyrians had finished, get this, several hundred years of conquering and expansion. Think about that for a moment. They had been conquering and expanding longer than America's been a country. That's a long military campaign. That's some aggressive imperialism. They built an empire during this time. And the thing is, there's something about the way that the Assyrians conquered. They, they didn't 
Yeah, they didn't just conquer. They did it in an especially brutal and merciless way. This was part of their, uh, their MO. This was the way that they did things. They were not just violent, they celebrated violence. Commentator James Bruckner compiled evidence that Assyria acted consistent with that of a terrorist state. They were not just violent. They discovered early on the usefulness of fear and intimidation, and that became one of their chief tactics. Even their architecture played a role in striking fear in their enemies because they would carve these huge reliefs. What they depict is not beautiful scenery. It was their enemies being violently mutilated and sometimes presented in humorous ways. There's many things that we could say about the Ninevites, go on and on about. It would just, it's disgusting. It would just disgust us. Fear was their game and nobody beat them at it. They were a cruel people. They were a no mercy people. And let's be fair to Jonah. Jonah knew probably more about the Ninevites than we do. The Ninevites were not an easy uh, people to love. They were probably people who conjured up strong feelings. On the other hand, Jonah's not necessarily the easiest person to love, and uh, we're kidding ourselves as we say we're easy to love. Um, But I'll say this. If you and I had lived in Israel during Jonah's time, we probably would have felt like, probably, the prevailing sentiment was that giving a chance to the Ninevites to repent and receive mercy, that needs to be way down on the list. That's it's unthinkable. Like, who would think of such a thing? Well, God would. God thinks of such things. Like Jonah, our hearts recoil whenever presented with the idea of showing mercy towards someone who we are convinced just deserves judgment. We've drawn the conclusion. It's like, I've done the math. They've done too much. They've totaled themselves. No more value. They, they're worthless. No more mercy. It's spent. It's gone. You cannot come back from that. You know, that, that's the conclusions that we can reach in our hearts. We put together categories of people. These people deserve mercy. These people don't. Mass shooter, child predator, whatever. These people, yeah, they're just normal people. They only commit normal sins they can still receive mercy. God does not have these categories. Obviously, if you read the scriptures, you'll get that. He does not have these categories. Those categories that we construct do not come from the gospel, do not come from the scriptures. They're not rooted in God's word. Those categories are our hearts and the wickedness in our hearts, the unrelenting posture of our hearts, the unmerciful posture of our hearts. So let me ask the question, Who are these people in your life? Are they people of a certain political persuasion? Are they right-wing extremists? Are they left-wing extremists? Are they people who are living a certain type of sinful lifestyle? Yeah, God hates that sin right there, so no mercy. People who have committed a certain type of crime. People who have committed a wrong or a crime against you 
or against someone you love. This category over here, they hurt me. They hurt someone I love. No mercy category. Ask yourself who you find it hard to uh, take a merciful posture towards. Hatred of our enemies doesn't always take this, this form of outward aggression. Sometimes hatred or judgment is avoidance or indifference. Who are the people you just feel uninterested in receiving mercy? Who are the people that when it comes to your mind, when God puts it on your heart to reach out to them, all of a sudden all of these arguments just spring to mind and you, you become so eloquent with all of these really great arguments about why you should not give mercy to people in that category. If they receive mercy, they'll go back. Look at their record. They always go back. It won't last. It won't be real. I've seen this before. These people, they're totally corrupt. They're totally morally depraved. You cannot help them. And on and on and on. These arguments... Whenever we say them in our minds and, and our heart wants to believe them, our heart is helping us believe really, really hypocritical arguments because don't we go back? Don't we fail again? God chases us down again. Don't we run again? Is God saying that to us? Because if God said that to us, we're done. We're toast. No hope for us. If God says, yeah, I've been pursuing them for like 35 years and they still don't get it. We'd be toast. Yeah, I've given them mercy tens of thousands of times. My mercies have been new every day. I've given them new mercy every day for tens of thousands of days. And they still mess up. Now, if God had that posture towards us, we're done. Who are the people you sh would struggle with even rejoicing at their repentance? Like it doesn't, it doesn't even phase you. You're unfazed. You're like, you hear that so-and-so or so this type of person or whatever repented. Um, you're just like, man, it doesn't even, if I'm honest, I don't feel joy welling up in my heart that that person repented. I kind of would have felt better if they would have just been judged. I think of like, Serial killers who have had, you know, conversions in prison. You're just like, this one's tough for my heart. I think about their victims. I think about the terrible things that they've done. And I'm not getting into all the particulars about how we deal with that. I'm talking about mer the basic mercy and forgiveness. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about approaching every person the same exact way and logistics and, and everything like that. Um, I'm talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about just mercy and relenting. All right, so Jonah travels to Nineveh and preaches. Before we get to the response, before we get to Nineveh and what's going on once he starts preaching. Let me draw your attention to the seven words that we have that are on record of Jonah's sermons to the Ninevites. 
um, he says this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, why do we have these seven words? Just the, you know, these seven words. Here we see another instance of the writer communicating to us something important by what he chooses to bring to the forefront. He could have chosen a lot of different quotations from Jonah's sermons, but he chooses these seven words. And while this, this chapter mostly focuses on the Ninevites, we do and get the, in these seven words more light shed on Jonah's heart. Pastor Tim Keller writes this. He says, the summary that the text gives us of his sermons was not in 40 days, Nineveh might be overthrown. But in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was what Jonah enthusiastically wanted and predicted. He enjoyed preaching wrath. He did it with glee, not with tears, because he couldn't wait for God's hammer to fall on them. So in Jonah 1, we see Jonah running physically from the Lord. In Jonah 2, we see something more subtle. He cloaks it in theological, sound theological doctrine and a good prayer, a good prayer that anybody could pray and it'd be a good prayer, but taken within his context, there's no admission of guilt in that prayer. So taken within context, he's still running. He's still running in chapter 2. Now in chapter 3, we think, we, we might think, oh, Jonah, Jonah went this time. He obeyed. He's, he's had a change of heart. Read chapter 4. It's not there yet. But we see something about Jonah's heart in chapter 3 here that he's still running even in obedience. You're like, what? How can I be? Isn't that the opposite of obedience? Well, he fulfills the mission, but his heart still harbors hatred for the Ninevites, and this hatred comes through in his preaching. You can preach and still be running. Preachers do it. It happens. We're human. Nineveh was not only big in population, it was geographically big. Sprawled across an area that would take three, journeys, uh, three days to journey across, according to verse 3. By way of contrast, I came from a a small town you could cross in 10 minutes. So if Jonah had gotten that assignment, he could have stopped at the one gas station in town, preached, and be done with it. It would have reached everybody. But in a major city like Nineveh, a prophet would have had to travel across various sections, speaking to different crowds over a period of time. So he had his work cut out for him. He had a whole preaching circuit that he had to do. We would think, right? We would think, but what happens? Verse 4 and 5, we see Jonah only ends up preaching the first day. The response of the Ninevites is so immediate and so enthusiastic. I see Jonah, the horror on Jonah's face. He's, and further preaching becomes unnecessary. He's in the middle of a sermon probably, and they just start mass repenting and believing God. And Jonah's probably like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Wait till I'm at least done. I'm, gonna t I'm telling you guys you're going to be overthrown. You know, just please stop, stop, stop. 
Jonah does not want this to happen. They're killing his hopes that, he, that they're going to be judged. What he was afraid of was happening in the most extreme manner. They're repenting of, with all their might and turning from wicked ways. And then everything culminates in, in verse 10. God relenting of the destruction he was going to bring upon Nineveh. He sees the Ninevites' repentance, how they turned from their evil ways, and he mercifully lets up. That's relenting. It's a change. God changes his posture. It's not God, it's not God reacting to new information that he didn't know about. God is responding God is changing his posture. He had a posture of wrath. He was threatening them with wrath. They repented, and God relented. God changed his posture to one of mercy. He mercifully lets up on them, not giving them what their sins deserve. As for Jonah, we'll leave most of it for chapter 4, but I'll say this, there remains a great distance between Jonah's heart and the father's heart regarding Nineveh. They're not in sync. Jonah's heart refuses to relent of its judgment and hate. But there is hope for him. There's hope for Jonah too. The father is unrelenting in his pursuit of Jonah. More unrelenting is the father's pursuit than Jonah's judgment. Jonah's hope is in the Father's ever-merciful posture toward him. Now, this is good news for us. I laugh at Jonah, but I, I'm like Jonah. I laugh because I see myself. Maybe it's a nervous laugh. Maybe it's like, wow, this is hitting close to home. I've, I've seen people repenting before, and I'm like, well, that's not how I wanted to. Should I even finish that sentence? It's so bad. That's so bad to think, right? But I'm going to be honest. My, my heart does not always hope for mercy for people. It wants judgment. It would feel more satisfied by judgment. It's wicked. It's wrong. It's a bad posture of my heart. But I'm going to be honest with you, and I hope you're honest with me, that you take that posture sometimes toward people. There's certain kinds of people, it may be different for all of us, that there's categories that you have. You're like, I don't know if I could get there with these people. This is, this is really hard for me. It might be because of an experience you've had in the past. It might just be because how you were raised or whatever, but there's going to be people, and there has been. But this is good news for us. Just like Jonah, our hearts can naturally take a no-mercy posture against others. No-mercy people... No mercy posture. Remember, the Ninevites were no mercy, so we respond with no mercy, right? It's not what God did. It's not what the Father did. And that's good news for us. Sometimes we know what's right in our head, but our hearts hold fast in the opposite direction. They cling and hold fast to the old ways. The no mercy. They refuse to relent. I refuse to. Sometimes you're just like, I know the right way that I should feel. I know they should forgive this person, but every time I think about it, every time I think that I've, I've gotten past this, my heart 
grabs on to this posture again and grabs onto that judgment and comes up with all kinds of arguments why I, I shouldn't relent towards them and it takes that old way up again, that old posture. There's hope for hearts like that, hearts like ours, hearts like mine and like yours. There's hope for us in our Father's merciful posture. There's hope in the good news of the gospel that God did not take a no-mercy posture towards us. He took a merciful one. So I have three things. This is not an exhaustive list. These are not the only things that you should preach to your unrelenting heart, but these are a few things that I saw spring from this text uh, that we could remember whenever our hearts don't, uh, won't relent. So, number one, when our hearts won't relent, let's remember where this path takes us. Let's remember where this posture takes us. James 2.13 says this, it says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That's not Old Testament, that's New Testament. That's the book of James. When our Father, here's the truth, when our Father calls us to join Him in showing mercy, He's not trying to provoke us, to torture us. He's not trying to make our lives hard because He enjoys that. He is rescuing us from a posture that in the end will receive no mercy from him. He's rescuing us from that because he does not reward that posture. In the end, that posture receives no mercy from him. If we keep that, we don't, if we don't repent, if we don't respond to his grace, if we don't trust him and take his hand, if we hold that to the very end, it will work death in us. His mission is one of mercy to us as much as it is others through us whenever he calls us to join him in these missions of mercy, showing mercy to others. Number two, when our hearts won't relent, let's remember that the, the unglamorous side of sin. Let me explain. We have a natural tendency to glamorize the lives of other people as if they don't live in the same broken world as us, experience the same weaknesses of the fallen human nature, as if they're not suffering. We look at them, we look at their social media account, the front that they're putting up, like, yeah, this is me. No, it's not. It's not you. I know it's not. Why aren't you putting up the suffering you're going through and the, and the, the, the wickedness of your heart? Well, that would look awkward on social media. Please don't put that on there. But you do need to be confessing it to someone. And watch how you portray yourselves to others because you could be helping them glamorize your life and think that God is not fair to them. You're, you could be helping them. If not, I'm not talking about don't post good things on Facebook. I'm talking about if all you portray yourself as, look at my awesome life. Look at this. Awesome. It's never bad. Never bad at all. I never need mercy. I never struggle with what God's called me to do. When we apply this to somebody who's done something to us, we have something against them for some reason, this glamorizing of other people's lives is a reinforcement of a no mercy posture. It just, it gives our hearts exactly what they need to be like, see, that's why they, I'm not going to do this, God. They don't need my mercy. They don't need your mercy. 
Why show them mercy? Look at me. I'm miserable, God. Look at what they did to me and then went back to their awesome life. They posted right after they did that. Me, I'm oppressed. By the way, where are you, God? Where are you? And you, co- you come to me, and when you come to me, you give me a mission to show mercy to them. They should be, like, apologizing to me. Yes, apologies need to happen, but if we wait till other people apologize to us to show mercy, we may be waiting. We're probably going to wait too long. We may be waiting forever. God calls us to initiate. He initiated. He went first. He didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us because he knew that we'd never come to him without him coming to us. This is actually probably what Jonah did. He's thinking that the Ninevites, he's like, these people have been conquering for 300 years and racking up all this tribute from all these countries that they conquered. All these countries are being oppressed economically by this nation because they now have to pay tribute. Israel was one of them. Israel was paying tribute to Assyria. He's like, why? They're successful. They're prospering. They got to be like really doing great because they are oppressing everybody else. This conquering, bloodthirsty, wicked people. Their lives are awesome. There can't be anything going wrong for them, God. Well, on the outside, in all of their battlefield victories and in the way they portrayed themselves, probably looked that way. But the fact is, and here's something that Jonah may not have known. Jonah may, may have been Israel and watching his uh, Israeli-centered news, you know? It reinforced his posture. He listened to the voices that reinforced and made him feel good about judging the Ninevites. See, see, this is why we judge them. This, again, I get a new reason every day. This is why we judge them. This is why they need to be brought to judgment. And this is why it's unthinkable, God, why we'd show them mercy. He probably didn't know this, that Nineveh uh, and, and Assyria had been going already through several decades of decline. A, a new king had taken the throne. He was perceived to be a weak king, and his, his reign started out horrible. Everything seemed to go wrong from the very beginning. First of all, they had a total solar eclipse, which means nothing today to most people, but to them, really bad, really bad omen, okay? They called their king the sun god of the Assyrians, and that's how his reign started. Well, this is going to be good. This is going to be great. Then a famine strikes the land. Then rebellions and revolutions spring up, and the weak king cannot quell them. There's total unrest. People start taking things into their own hands, And the violence that they did to other people outside their cities and outside the empire, they started doing to each other. There was widespread social injustice. They turned on each other. They had each other's blood on their hands. So when Jonah entered Nineveh, he entered a city that was eager to receive good news. He entered a city that was suffering greatly. These people were suffering We don't usually think about it. That's not usually where we go to, like such and such a person that I don't want to relent towards. I don't usually say to myself first, like, you know what, though? They're probably suffering. 
doesn't come to mind. I don't know, maybe it does for you, but it doesn't come to mind for me that like, you know, maybe they're having a really rough time. When I've reached that point of my heart has gotten into that posture, those thoughts don't come up. All the thoughts that come up are, this is all they do, this is who they are, this is why I don't give them mercy. This is why I'm not interested. So when Jonah arrived in Nineveh, he possibly saw that. He possibly turned a blind eye to it because it's not the kind of news that made him feel more comfortable in judging them. He had his posture. He wasn't interested in, in, in empathy and in receiving news that would challenge that. But God was showing him the reality versus the fantasy that he had in his head about the Ninevites' lives of prosperity. And so let's bring, whenever we, our hearts are unrelenting in judgment, let's bring reality to the reality that uh, the scriptures tell us that we're all fallen, that we're all suffering, that there's nobody whose lives are, are perfect and they're awesome and, and no, you know, it's not like that. Don't glamorize other people's lives, especially uh, whenever you have something like against them and you're, you're going to really find it hard to relent because that's going to reinforce it. Okay, number three. That was a long one. This one isn't, isn't as long. When our hearts won't relent, you got to get this one. When our hearts won't relent, we, let's remember, we were the Ninevites. We were Ninevites. We were outside the kingdom, outside God's family. There was a wall. We were inside our city doing our wicked things. We were a foreigner who did not know God's ways or his word. That was us. We were Ninevites. But Jesus, the better Jonah, the better missionary, came. He came because if he didn't come, we would have never came to him. He came and he rescued us from the impending wrath of God. He came to our city, in a way, and he preached his gospel. He came in and he preached to us his gospel, the good news. He called us to repentance by his spirit. He called us to repentance. Remember God's mercy and his relenting towards you at the cross. So when our hearts rebel and they take this no mercy posture towards others, there is hope for our hearts. And it doesn't, rely, it doesn't lie in our own strength. Like, I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to try to find the button, the remote that I can, I can press, and it's going to just, it's going to be the key that makes my heart relent. There is none. I'll save you the time looking for it. There is none in your own strength, in your own devices. You, you cannot be clever enough to get your heart to relent. It must be overpowered by the grace of God. It must receive the mercy and look upon the mercy and the beauty and the love of Christ at the cross and what he's done for us. And that loosens the grip of an unrelenting heart. Be reminded of God's great relenting towards you. Because of Jesus, he has not given you what your sins deserve. He has relented. He has changed his posture. You had the identity of a Ninevite. Now you have an identity of a child of God. One more thing about the Assyrians. Whenever they conquered, 
they did another thing besides tribute and humiliating family members who were left and everything like that. They also, whoever was left, they said to that people, you're now Assyrians. They placed an identity on them. You're Assyrians now. You're part of our empire. You're not your, you know, your heritage, gone, replaced. You're Assyrians. This was our identity before. Our father was the father of lies, the king of this world. That was our identity, but Christ came and he called us to repentance and to trust him and to put our faith in him and he gave us a new identity, a new identity, one that is not characterized by a lifestyle of no mercy. No, it's a lifestyle that is characterized by ever-relenting, ever-giving mercy. So, God has called you not to be just a receiver of mercy, but a giver of mercy. Give as you have been given. Don't be like the guy that Jesus talked about where he was, he was forgiven of that immeasurable debt and then he goes and like choking the other guy down the street who owes him 10 bucks. Don't be that guy. That guy is not on a good path. That guy is on a path of destruction. That guy is not responding to mercy the way that he uh, he, he should. Um, and if, if you have been that guy, like I have been that guy at times, because look, God's forgiven us of so much and I have held it over people's heads. Let's repent of that. Let's repent of that now and let's turn to him. Let's recognize and remember our father's merciful posture towards us and let's join him in relenting towards others. Now, Zach is going to come up now, and he's going to uh, pray a prayer of uh, confession and repentance. He's going to lead us as a church family in repenting and, and uh, uh, confessing and, and placing faith in Christ and believing the gospel again that we're forgiven by faith. And then we'll do communion and uh, continue our worship and song.